Welcome to um, one of the Sundays where most churches are hearing from their youth directors or um, someone else, not the lead pastor, but I really wanted to finish Romans 8 because, friends, it is so encouraging. And utilizing it for Advent has been uh, more interconnected than I would have realized prior to uh, September, which is when I started studying it in depth, actually, with a group of EPC pastors who are all doing the same thing, though they're a week behind us because they're kind of wiser than me and wanted to take off this week. If you have your Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8. This concludes the section in the middle of Romans about life in the Spirit. Romans 4 is about our justification, Jesus standing before us, making us right with God. And Romans 5 through 8 is about our opportunity, which Advent, I think, puts sharp relief on, to live by the Spirit until Jesus returns. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I think that's the best I've ever done, clicking the slides myself. What do you think? Thanks, Eric. If God is for us, I mean, friends, this is the question. And to the extent that we're grasped by it and are willing and able to ask and then answer it in our hearts and minds, there is the joyful Christian life. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, in verse 32 I think situates Romans 8 as a spectacular Advent series. All that we receive by faith because of Jesus' humanity and work when he was here that frees us into life in the Spirit if God is for us. We have to answer the question, what are these things Paul's talking about to, to rightly be in awe and encouraged and inspired by verse 31? What are the things? They're all the things that would convince you that God's not for you. The world, the enemy, there is an enemy. He is not God's opponent, but he is God's adversary. And his whole goal is literally that you spend the last hour doing anything else. 
That is 100% the first goal of God's adversary is for you to not worship. So, great job. It's our own sin also, though, isn't it? Our own sin might convince us that God's not for us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, our sin is real, and so we have an opportunity to repent and learn a better way towards God and towards others. If we're not a Christian, we have a knowledge of sin, it's going to crush us. Or we're going to try really, really, really hard, probably crush us, or just compartmentalize it and do life the best we can. But if we're a Christian, our sin creates an opportunity for repentance and love. Others' sin might convince us God is not for us because others can really hurt us. Those are the things Paul's talking about. He's expecting you to remember, especially in this particular section, Romans 5 through 8, that we have received the newness of life and the Spirit, and not all parts of us, Romans 7, are grown up and mature, but we have the Holy Spirit, which means we God is for us, and we can actually remember that when other things are against us. All the realities of your life are the things that Paul's talking about. He's using inspiring rhetorical questions with obvious answers and incredible implications. What then shall we say to these things, all the things that come against us? We say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this is where English and Greek can throw us off a little bit, and Philippians 4, 16 is the uh, even more egregious version of this. What are all the things? They're not all the things. They're not the longer vacation or the Tesla. They're all the things that you need to do. All the provision that you need to do life in this world before God and your friends and family members and the work that you have to do. God provides those in the Spirit. That's what he's talking about in verse 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? which means we can stand. We can actually do life on a day-to-day basis with ever-increasing joy. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What does that mean? There are forces and voices that would attempt to convince you that you're guilty. This is a little bit like verse 31, but it's a little bit different also. He's using legal language on purpose to remind us of Romans 1 through 4 which teaches us that Jesus covers our sin. Atone, propitiation, justify, cover. Those are all the different words. I don't remember, actually, if Paul uses all of them, but throughout the New Testament, those are the words. If that's true, then you're not guilty. Have you gotten into a heated argument with someone and they either implied or said that you're a terrible person? It was much more heated than that, and I'm not going to try and recreate it here in church. That's a charge. Are they allowed to charge you that in truth? No. Nope, not, not at a deep, not at like an ontological level. You know what I mean by that? Like being, in your being. You're a bad person. My wife and I used to actually say that when we were kind of joke fighting, and I used to freak out one of my sisters. And we were like, we'll stop, but we were kidding. 
But you need to get into those arguments and someone either says or implies something really awful, nasty. That's one of the ways that God's elect are charged. And Paul is saying, that's not supposed to stick with you or to you. There might be a shred of truth in it in terms of like I could relate better to this person in my life, my parent, child, sibling, friend, coworker. But the charge is not true. The, the evil one would want you to convince you that you're guilty and you need to work really hard. But God has justified you when you received by faith the work of Jesus Christ. You're either justified or you're not. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that the sweet relief of being a follower of Jesus is knowing that not through our work, but his, we are made right with God. It's the teaching of Romans 1 through 4, and Paul's referencing it here to encourage you. You can actually stand and do your work and your life with the people in your life because of the Holy Spirit that's in you. And when they charge you, you can actually reject it. Maybe out loud even, not like angrily the way that they came at you. Maybe you remember something, and if you're in the produce aisle, like either whisper it or keep it quiet, but I'm serious. That charge, whatever it sounds like, no, God has justified you. He has made you right with him through his work. It's very, very, very good news. The gospel is a living argument to any that would convince us that we're not loved, that our sin isn't taken care of, that we can't love well the people in our life, that there isn't joy. I believe understanding verses 33 and 34 to the extent that we're grasped by them would change how we do life. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I'm going to talk about intercessor. And listen, if I get to point three and I don't talk about intercessor, somebody start waving your arms because I did that in the first service and it made me freely upset because this is an important part of the text. Okay? So if I get to point three and I didn't talk about intercessor, somebody over here too in case I'm facing. Okay? All right. All right. But before we get to that, I think if we understood and were grasped by verses 33 and 34, it would change the way that we do life. Sometimes when I don't talk to one of my non-Christian friends about faith, it's because I'm confident that they don't want to hear about it. That's a charge. I'm putting some other voice in charge of that. Now, sometimes I know that they would receive it as antagonistic, so it's actually wise and good to not talk to them about faith. Like one of my neighbors is very, very, very clear. He doesn't want to talk about him. All right, we'd still be friends. We, we're watching Marvel movies together. You know, we have conversations about parenting. But there are other friends, and I talk myself out of it. And if I believed and trusted actively, verses 33 and 34, I would feel free-er to employ those, conver- to have those conversations because I wouldn't listen to the charge. I think one of the ways that we naturally do, especially marriage, is reciprocal, right? I will love them if they do this. As soon as they do this, then I'll start doing the thing that they asked for me. That's a charge. 
like a legal charge from the world, it's not how God describes love. To the extent that we drink in our justification, Romans 1 through 4, and then receive life in the Spirit. And this is true in friendship also. We can love regardless of how we're treated. And we talk about wisdom, boundaries, all that kind of stuff, but for Romans 8, friends, we don't wait to be loved to love. This works for parents and children, though I think more specifically for marriages. If you are a parent and your kids are under 20, you're being charged right now that your kid has to succeed. And I was talking with some parents who I respect after the first service, and they said, there's still a balance there where we do want our kids to succeed. And I said, that's true. And I respect this person as a parent a lot. Yes, we do want our children to succeed. But the way that the Farmington Valley in 2021 would talk about success does not square with what the Bible says is our role in raising our children. We are to lead our parents in the worship of God. We can't force it, but we can lead them in the worship of God, in the care for all of the neighbors in their life, and for them to grow up in love. Simsbury, especially, I've lived here eight years, pretends that it is not incredibly pressury. It is. And some of that pressure is no good. And you know that, I think, but I want to remind you of that. Your opportunity, parents, this is interesting to me. I'll try and be brief. I should have run this by you before I said it. Part of the reason I'm emphasizing this so strongly is the constitution of our denomination regularly reminds me that I'm supposed to talk to you about raising your children in the Lord. Which is interesting. See, should have run it by you. Simsbury would imply that my children need to be not only successful, but probably a little more successful than me to be happy. It's interesting as a pastor. I'm not positive what that means. That's evil. That's evil. Parents, what you are to raise your children, to lead your children in is worship of God, care for neighbor, and then be themselves in Christ in the world, regardless of in some respects of money, they need provision, roof, food. And that's a tall order. I believe if we drank in the truths behind no one can charge us, no one can condemn us, to go back to verse 1 of chapter 8, it would change how we do all of life. We'd be freed into real love, friendship. And then at the very end of verse 33, excuse me, Verse 34, Paul mentions that Jesus is interceding for us. This is Dane Ortland, actually used to be a member of the barn. Very, very smart guy. Writes great books and devotionals. Um, I think I overlapped with him in seminary, but I'm not sure. He says this in chapter 9 of Gentle and Lowly, which is a really, 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 really lovely book. Intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. Pressing in more deeply, Christ's intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. If we knew about Christ's death and resurrection but not his intercession, we would be tempted to view our salvation in overly formulaic terms. It would feel more mechanical than is true to who Christ actually is. His interceding for us reflects his heart. 
The same heart that carried him through life and down into death on behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. Jesus is not bored. He's in heaven interceding for you and for me right now. Which is very sweet news. If God is for us, then we can stand even through trials. I believe verse 35 and 36 are talking about, 35 is talking about the suffering that is potentially available to all humans, and 36 is using a poetic quotation of the Old Testament reminding us that as as a follower of Jesus, there will be additional suffering, which is such a terrific advertisement for membership in the local church. Come here where you will suffer more. Luckily, that's not all there is to it, and the reason that there's additional suffering is because we have additional hope. Actually, a hope for our friends who are not yet followers of Christ. We have hope for our own and others' healing, but that will come with some suffering alongside it. The existential weight of being a human in the world will sometimes lead you to believe that you're separated from the love of God, right? Our anxiety will sometimes lead us to feel or to think that we're separated from God. Our enemies will sometimes lead us to believe we're separated from God. And listen, we, we sometimes make the, the Bible more spiritual than it is, like it's only spiritual. We sometimes make it more mundane or miss how mundanely helpful it is. Sometimes when we talk about enemies, especially in this culture, people think they don't have enemies. There are people at your place of business who think of you as in the way. Biblically speaking, that's an enemy that you get to forgive and still treat with love and all that. But Paul's point is you have people that aren't for you. And as a Christian, the opportunity to still stand and be a Christian to love them is there. You do have enemies. When we see injustice, does it sometimes make us think that God is other and separate from this world? Some of you have have had to worry in the past or today about provision. How am I going to pay for that? That can lead you to believe that you're separated from the love of God. That was my attempt at taking Paul's somewhat old and maybe overly to our ears bible words in verse 35 and saying, can those separate you from the love of God? And what's his answer in verse 36? Excuse me, 37. What's the answer? There's a sermon land for you. No. They cannot separate you. And I know so many ways that we come to believe or sense or feel that they can. I was thinking this morning about how many mature Christian friends I have and how rarely I reach out to them when I feel separated from the love of God. And I don't know why I don't. 
Like some of them aren't even at this church, so it's not like, well, they, I'm their pastor. They can't ever know that I sometimes don't feel connected to the love of God. I really don't. I, I'm not sure, and so I maybe shouldn't preach about it until I know why. But my encouragement is to reach out. My encouragement is that you go back and read Romans 8, 31 through 38, fast, and then read it slow. Text it to a friend, and they're like, you never text me a Bible verses. I know, trying to change, trying to remember the provision of God for my daily life. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? That's right. Good job. Can they? You're nailing it. You guys are nailing it. It's mostly this side of the room. I feel like this side of the room is sometimes louder. Not today. I'm slightly closer to this side of the room. I don't know why. Because of that table probably. If God is for us, we can if God is for us, we can stand even through trials through him who loved us. Verse 35 offers the regular scene like daily life stuff that happens I think to all humans. Verse 38 is talking about the spiritual stuff. It's talking about the stuff we cannot see. And the scriptures are almost constantly equipping us to deal with both what we can see, temptations, what we cannot see the evil that's in the world, that's in the spiritual realm. And Paul is continuing to ask his, oh no, he stops at this point asking his questions and he just wants to inspire you and encourage you because of what Jesus did for you, what the Holy Spirit is doing now in you as we wait for his return. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's a reference to his return. If you've read the book of Revelation, it's a very important word. It talks about the role of the Christian after Jesus returns. Paul isn't going to talk about it for very long right here, but that is what he's referencing. Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week I uh, spent a significant amount of energy attempting to help us understand part of biblical teaching about suffering. And I think that's important because especially that section of Romans, verses 18 to 30 of chapter 8, are misunderstood, they're taken out of context, etc. But, and Paul's alluding to this now, and he's expecting us to have just stayed with him through all of Romans, and especially 5 through 8, and understand this as the penultimate part of the argument. While God sorts out all of what's happened to us for his glory and the good of neighbor, and for ourselves, I want to add to what I said last week, and I know you weren't all here, but you'll understand the point. Some of what has happened to you, some of it, God permitted to prepare you for the mission that he has for you. And that's not one thing. That's, that's, the book that I referenced last week is called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Spectacular book. The lie in it is so subtle. It's that there's like one thing, like one day, one hour and 20 minute period that all this was designed for and I better deliver in that one like the end of Avengers Endgame or something. 
No. God will, God is and will sort out all that's happened in the world and happened to us for his glory and the good of neighbor and for our own growth, but some of what has happened to us. And Paul's referencing that by giving us like 17 categories of suffering, seven rhetorical questions and all these categories to remind us that some of that is for the mission that he has called us to. That we might leave this section of Romans so encouraged. Seven questions, 17 categories, all designed to inspire and encourage you while still being honest about life. Because the Bible is very honest about what it's like to be a human in the world. And the provision for those whose allegiance is in Jesus to have joy now and eternal life. Oops. That's not what I wanted to do. That's awkward. Can you just kill that, Steve? Hi, Dane. Good to see you again. So glad you made it to worship with us. I wanted to, I wanted to end by reading to you again verses 38 and 39. And friends, if you need encouragement this week, this is a spectacular verse to write on a note card. If you need encouragement this week, this is a spectacular verse to memorize. Maybe you already have. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he's that good. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask to believe these things in such a deep way that when the world condemns and assaults us, when we hear voices in our, that are very real in our life or family or in our head that condemn us, that we would remember the gospel, that we would remember all of these many beautiful truths you inspired Paul to write. And then we would be able to rest in your love. Jesus, we praise you for the work that you did justifying us before God. Holy Spirit, we believe you are in us. Help us to sense and rely on your indwelling more than all the other voices and attacks of this world. Amen.